HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Hi there, I'm Yom, host of Item 13, an African food podcast. I'm excited to be joining the Heritage Radio Network this year as we kick off our fourth season of the podcast. On Item 13, we cover all aspects of the African food ecosystem. You will hear West Africans squabble over who has the best jollof. Newsflash, it's Ghana. It's time to celebrate our jollof. Like we are done with comparing who and who did what. And jollof is not just about even the rice, it's about the protein that goes with it. Guests share their expertise on African food ingredients and spices. This is a region where, you know, even if you look at 18th century maps, you know, you had something called the pepper coast. Fresh and aromatic peppers. That is what distinguishes West Africa. Tips on marketing food businesses. A good way to engage your audience is to take them on that journey. You know, get them talking right. about this idea you have. That way you're engaging them. They're engaging with each other. And you're getting useful insights that you can then pull from and use to develop your recipe. This season, my goal is to focus on more stories outside of English-speaking West Africa. So you'll hear stories from Benin, from Uganda, Liberia, and even Haiti. You'll also hear us discuss the impact of the Black Lives Matter movement and how COVID-19 has impacted some of the businesses featured on the show. You can catch up now on previous episodes of Item 13, wherever you listen to podcasts, and join us this season as we debut on HRN. Thank you.
Welcome to Queer the Table. I'm your host, Nico Whistler. This week, I spoke with Ian Field-Stewart. Ian is the founder of The Okra Project, an organization that pays Black trans chefs to go into the homes of other Black trans people and make them a healthy, delicious, and home-cooked meal. Obviously, they've needed to shift their model over the course of the last six months, but Ian never took a break. Not only have they been continuing to provide food and care to the community, but they've also stepped into a much more visible role as an activist. This past June, Ian was one of the organizers for and speakers at the Brooklyn Liberation March. To start our conversation, I asked Ian where they got the idea for the Ochre Project. So uh, the foundational idea behind the Ochre Project when I found it in December of 2018 was genuinely a reaction to um, the holiday season. I recognized that I had a privilege of being able to go home uh, for the holidays to a family that had raised me and still supported me as who I was. And so I had been thinking and just sort of, you know, percolating ideas about like, you know, what might I do to be able to give back to my community and to help alleviate loneliness and Um, people who may feel isolated or disconnected from community or from family. And so um, my activism, uh, you know, as I've developed the Oka Project and grown, like I describe my activism as being about interrogating the the exclusivity of luxury, because I think that in making that luxury available to the most marginalized, because I feel like things like therapy, things like a private chef, things like, you know, being able to just to rest, to be at peace, you know, yeah. all of that um, is something that I feel like should be available to the people who are experiencing the highest levels of stress, the highest levels of oppression, the highest levels of, you know, marginality within our society. Yeah. I wonder, like, why food was the kind of luxury that you started with and chefs cooking in people's homes? Well, um, I mean, one uh, one of the great ironies of the Okra Project is that um, I, I would not consider myself the greatest chef <laughs> or the greatest cook even. Um, I can, you know, I, you know when, when the moment strikes me and I have some time, I can throw down just like the rest of them, but um, it, is not my, <laughs> it is not my instinct um, to do so. And so I think that in general, for me, I've always valued that someone would um, choose me, you know? Like when, whenever people be like, oh, you should come over and I'll cook for you and I'll, you know, you know, just put some food together for you. It's like, I just always felt so chosen, so loved, so taken care of, you know, mm-hmm. it just was a weight off of my mind. And so I think that for me, I was like, you know, girl, I'd love someone to come and cook for me all the time. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. and for that, you know, and for that to be something that I just didn't, that would be a weight off of my mind, you know, not wor- worrying about having to put together food for the day. And for some people, obviously that is, you know, that isn't a chore, that is like that's something that they love and that's, you know, why we have the chefs work at the Hooker Project. Um, right. But um, I think that for me, there's just something about food in general that, like, you know, the best memories that I have with my friends and people are often around food. It's like food is such a communal experience it's just to sit down around a table and eat with someone. And I think that's also why, like, you know, it's so important to us that our chefs are Black trans chefs because it's not just about feeding, you know, bellies. It's about feeding souls. Right. And so when you're in a kitchen, when, you know, when, when you bring someone into your home, there's like, there's this intimacy to it, you know, obviously not like, you know, an essential intimacy or anything <laughs> like that, but just like a human, a human int- intimacy of like saying, 
of welcoming someone into your home and welcoming them into your kitchen and just allowing them to cook for you. And of course, that conversations are going to arise, you know, between us as Black trans people. And we're going to talk about our shared experiences or just, or talk about, you know, our different experiences, talk about our days, our weeks, our years, our lives. You know, it's like all of those things can happen while someone is cooking for you. It just, it, it brings me joy to think about Black trans people just gathering around the table and talking and talking to each other and taking that time. And there's kind of a luxury in this like very fast paced society that tells us we have to constantly be producing, we have to constantly be working. There's a real, there's a real celebration and a real joy to just taking a moment to breathe and to sit with each other and to just communicate. Yeah, I mean, there's so much in there. It's so much like the Oka Project to me feels so visionary and so ahead because it's it's not just about meeting a basic need, which is like, we all need to eat. I hear so much in what you're saying about like, food as a love language, food as family, and like deeply tied to what you were already talking about, which is like, you have this strong biological family to go home through and and kind of finding ways to like, offer that family and intimacy to other folks feels so at the core of the way that you you speak about the work and so beyond we don't want people to be hungry yeah and i also i feel like you know just in recognizing that i, I appreciate being called visionary or you know, this vis- being called visionary but also i have to acknowledge that like all of our work is always inspired by other folks and you know, we're always building off of something brilliant that someone did before us and i know for me one of my biggest inspirations around just my personal activism and something that really shifted me was um an exhibit I went to called Black Power Naps, created by Nabil Acosta and Fanny Sosa. Mm. And Black Power Naps is this sculptural installation that um, reclaims laziness and idleness as power, particularly for Black people, um, and specifically for Black people. And it was just this amazing exhibit where we, you know, I walked in and it was just all about like relaxation and slowing down and like all of these plush beds that you could lay down on or these plush, like, you know, um, pillows and everything just like a whole exhibit where you just got to walk around and literally just lay down and sleep and lay and you know at the time I was with a partner and you know we were able to like just like lay together and we're both Mm. you know black you know people who love each other and I feel like that moment for me was so pivotal um even if it was just an art installation I feel like it was so pivotal pivotal for me as an activist because it was the reminder that like you know because I think that, you know, I was, I, you know, I, as I've been navigating my journeys, like I found myself, like I, I'm, a, I'm a four, I'm a, I have four fireplaces in my main chart. So I am very fiery mm-hmm. and always ready to kind of go off. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and I was finding that it's like, you know, oh, like I want to bring that fire to protest, you know, and I would go to protest and I wouldn't always feel safe. And often I would feel like I kind of just wanted to listen and be a part of the experience, but I didn't necessarily want to speak. Of course, the great irony of that being, you know, the Brooklyn Liberation March that happened a couple of months ago. Oh my ago. God, so like, incredible. Yeah, so obviously, <laughs> well, thank, thank you. But like, obviously that kind of shifted. But, you know, it's like, I think that like that, that exhibit for me was just so pivotal for me as an, as an activist and as a human, as just far as reminding me of like the power of these things that we are told by a capitalist society are are a waste of time mm-hmm. or that pr- or prove our prove that we are lesser than or that we are you know or use laziness as a bad word right? right 
instead of honoring and recognizing that as Black people, and particularly as Black trans people, we are consistently just like traumatized in our daily lives. Like just waking up and seeing um, the number of deaths that we experience and murders that we experience and the way that people will refuse to see us, even if they have the ability to see us, but choose not to. And all of these various things that we navigate on a, just a daily basis that have become so normalized that we forget that it's just not normal. Mm-hmm. And so I think that what I hope that the OCA project does and what I hope to do within my activism, right, is by providing these luxuries, by providing these moments and saying, hey, I choose you. I choose to, you know, I choose you and I choose you to to center and prioritize and to center your pleasure, your um you know, and and pleasure being outside of the realm of just sensuality, but just like how we like centering, like your ability to enjoy your life, right? Right. Centering your ability to breathe a little easier today, right? My hope is that through doing that, that, you know, these systems will start to become all the more ridiculous to us, that by highlighting um, the necessity and the joy that we can cultivate from relaxation, from luxury, from just sitting back, that we can start to highlight how ridiculous it is that we are expected to like, you know, hustle and grind during a global pandemic. Right. Yeah. You know the total. Saying? Absolutely. I mean, it's a good check for me of like, yeah, prioritizing rest, even to talk about it as as what it is, which is a luxury um, and as something that feels so far outside of the activism that I often see. Um, and I just am so so grateful for those reminders of like late stage capitalism is not the thing (laughs) it's not (laughs) it's not it's not it and it's and it's i think that the the reality is that those things like even seeing like rest as a luxury it's like i mean we we are not supposed to be running around working all the time right we're supposed to be eating fruit and sleeping (laughs) like we like 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 those like i think that's like it's interesting to me because sometimes I feel that like luxury is kind of, you know, and, and obviously like, you know, luxury, like thinking of not thinking about like, you know, having like living in a mansion as luxury. Right. But thinking of like the kind of luxury of, you know, just like the luxury of being able to take your time and, and late stage capitalism has made us so you know desensitized to that process. What we are supposed to be doing, particularly Black trans people, after everything we've been through, mm-hmm. honey, we're supposed to be taking naps. We're supposed <laughs> to be fanned with palm leaves. We're supposed to be, you know, like treated like we're supposed to be eating grapes. We're supposed to be eating mangoes. We're supposed to be just laying back and doing absolutely nothing. Because look at what we've been through. Look at what we continue to go through. Yeah. And the fact that we continue to organize, the fact that we continue to like return to the streets and move and organize and move and build and fight back and speak up and educate for the 17th time, you know, about our experiences, even though there's literally Google right there, you know, that deserves rest. We deserve rest. We deserve relaxation. We deserve like pampering. We deserve to be treated like, you know, like, yo, you don't have to do anything. We got you. And so that's kind of the joy that the Oka Project provides me with is that, you know, I get to say, yeah, we have the resources to make that happen for you. Yeah. So powerful in there. I wonder, like, how do you, because you are in the movement, you kind of mentioned the incredible action at the Brooklyn Museum. And I like, I wonder how do you square that for yourself? And what are the ways that you 
find that balance of like, and maybe it's not a balance, but what are the ways that you move through like both <laughs> being in the streets and the shift to public speaking and like your own rest and pampering and care? <sighs> well, um, I think that I am still learning very much so because I am, you know, I'm just, I'm definitely a workaholic and have been for a while. And I think that, you know, for me, there's a measure of, you know, there's a measure of what I believe philosophically. And then there's a measure of like what I have to work on as an individual. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, this is why I go to therapy. This is why, you know, I'm still working on myself. Right. Um, but I think that part of that for me is one, you know, there's the logistical things of like, oh, my weekends are now just for me, you know, because this is, you know, the first time that I am now, you know, a salaried girl and I, you know, have mm -hmm. a, you know, and I have a nine to five, like as an actress, I ha I've been working uh, pretty steadily and singularly as an actress and a consultant for the past three years. So I'm very used to having a schedule that like one week I have, you know, I have every, I'm doing everything. And then another week I have literally nothing to do. And so I am kind of used to running, kind of like running until I hit the wall and then I'm like, okay, it's time to rest now, mm. you know? And I just cannot do that. I cannot produce in that same way during a global pandemic. And certainly not when I'm like in a global pandemic and working a nine to five job. Right. Um, that also is like, not just like any nine to five job. It's not something I can kind of just leave at home. It's something that is always with me. And and something that means so much to me. So I think that part of that is like, you know, making sure that I just on my weekends are my weekends. And I do things that feel good for me that, you know, and and that feel good and also like that support me in healthy and productive ways, mm -hmm. you know? And and that's that's just necessary. And I am not perfect at it. I fail all of the time and it's okay to fail. Um and I have to meet myself where I'm at with that. But you know, I try to prioritize um, the people around me who support who support those failures mm -hmm. <laughs> and and support my triumphs. Um, as far as you know, being more out in the streets um, than I had originally kind of. It's so funny, you know. Before June, <laughs> I said, "Oh, you know what? I'm not really. I just I'm not a protest girl. I like I had already determined that for myself, and I had been sitting in that for a while. I was like, I just it's not for me. You know, I I get really I get really nervous at them, like." I just don't always feel protected. I don't feel like I can like, you know, carve out my own space. Yeah. And, and then, you know, and then June came along and the world was, the universe was like, so that was cute. Uh -huh. <laughs> you had a nice little idea there. Um, get out there and start doing the work. And I was like, okay. <laughs> um, you know, cause when the call comes, you have to answer it. And when a black trans woman is given the mic, it's her duty and responsibility to take up as much time as she can. Mm. So, um, that's what I've been doing. And hopefully, you know, I, I try to make sure that I'm, not, it's not just me speaking, but also there are others who um, are speaking. And I hope that I do a good job of that. Um, and I hope that I uplift um, the other incredible people who are around me who are constantly teaching and inspiring me. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's work. It's interesting um, because it's work. It's work to not work. Yeah. In 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 a, in a in late stage capitalism, it is a it is a lot of work to not work, yeah, um, all the time and to not produce all the time. And so I think that I I I'm also trying to develop a practice of just asking like what is actually serving me, mm. what um what am I actually deriving joy from, and have I spent enough time like thinking about my joy, and 
you know, in the middle of a global pandemic, in the middle of like, you know, the past eight months for me personally um, have been a lot in the past three months professionally have been very intense. And so I think that, you know, sometimes it's very difficult to think about my joy. And I have to acknowledge also that sometimes my grief is necessary. My, mm. you know, being able to cry for the people that I've lost in my personal life and being able to cry for the people that we as a community have lost. You know, because at the end of the day, like what we, what none of us really are able to talk about is the fact that like an astronomical number of people have died, Yeah. you know, and that's why it's like, you know what, girl, if you don't perform your best today, like maybe that's just not what's important right now. You know, maybe that's just not the thing to think about. Like, because like, I mean, people are dying, Kim, like literally, like, I mean, not to, not to make light of those deaths. Um, in that way and I hope that's not how that came across but no you know it's just like like sometimes you just got to read the room and when you read the room it's like oh me stressing out about whether or not you know I responded to that email just that's I just that can't be the most important thing right now it just can't be right it's this piece too of taking your time of like taking your Mm -hmm. time to even figure out what you feel like I love that like how is my joy that you said and mm-hmm. and then feel it you know like I, I also think there's this push right now to not feel to like move beyond feeling and not really reckon with the horror absolutely I think that like I'm just I, I essentially what I was saying is I'm thinking about the collective trauma that we're all experiencing and how how we navigate that because I think that sometimes sometimes it feels like Sometimes it feels like, oh, you know, we're kind of, we're all kind of trying to have these hushed conversations between each other where we're like, are, are you experiencing it too? Are you kind of like, are you like, you know, mm. like losing sense of reality? Are you dissociating all the time? Are you kind of like, because we're, because we, there, we don't have any way of, under, there's no kind of common language or reference point for us to, particularly in this country, to understand what this is all like which is in itself a privilege, right? We are confronting our privilege as a nation that we have had to have, you know, like, but it's like, we're kind of all having these like hushed conversations one-on-one where we're like, oh my gosh, are you, are you going through it too? Is it just me? Am I, you know, and, and we're kind of isolating ourselves within this larger isolation, you know, mm-hmm. um, because we're afraid to reach out. We're afraid to touch. We're afraid to connect. Um, yeah. And then, and then there are moments like this where it's like, for, for whatever reason, this is what we're talking about on the podcast, you know, and mm-hmm. this isn't necessarily a conversation that we would have on a podcast, right? The pe- two veritable strangers who are just kind of like reaching each other in this way, talking about, you know, oh, by the way, are you kind of collectively dissociating from like the, coll- the, the worldwide trauma we're experiencing and this sort of global dissociation, this global like loneliness that we're all experiencing? Yeah. You know, I think it's 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 very um it's just this very odd experience. Like the world has quite literally changed and we are moving through that change and you know, and I am and I am tasked and have this very odd relationship to the fact that, you know, like listen, you know, I never had small ambitions. <laughs> I was you know, I wanted to be an actress my whole life. You know, I wanted to be an actress. I got to choose the projects that I did. And I wanted to, I wanted to be one of the dolls, one of the girls. Mm -hmm. And so, and so for me, you know, having any level of prominence or notoriety, and I always feel odd talking about it in this way, but, you know, I think it's important to acknowledge that that is, that is something that 
I've prepared myself for, but I've achieved a level of like prominence or like there's more attention on me and my words. And there are people are asking me to speak about things now. And it's because black trans women are dying and being murdered. And it's because I am a black trans woman who happens to have stepped forward at the, in the right moment at the right time. And my collective is now an organization that is a part of stepping forward. And so it's a very odd thing, right? This is, I said it before, but being an activist is something that I did, that I do because I have to. I, I stepped forward. I had an opinion, I had ideas, I stepped forward and thus, and thus I was an activist, you know, and here I am today. Yeah. But it wasn't something I necessarily like, was like, oh, I want to make a career out of being an activist or I want to, you know, which is like, I'm not interested in that. Like right. just straight up, I'm not interested in like, you know, profiting off of, or like making my living off of the fact that, you know, that there is a need for the Oka Project. I would really love for the Oka Project not to exist. Because that would mean that we are living in a world where the Oprah Project doesn't need to exist. It, it, it's a very odd thing. It's like, honey, believe you me, I would love to just be known for, oh, she's a sickening actress and she wears these gowns on the red carpet and that's what she does, you know? And that, like, what joy that would bring me, you know? Because, like, that would, that would you know, honey, oh, I, I just get to pretend to be someone else all day. I just get to play make believe and then people film it and put it on big screens. Honey, that's easy. <laughs> like, I got that. Like, all I got to do is learn my lines and then, you know, do and do the necessary acting work that I've been trained to do since I was four years old. But how to how to properly facilitate the experience of taking a breath, how to bridge the gap between like the philosophy of rest to the actual lived experience of rest and how to do so in a way that operates safely and legally within, you know, the realm of of this capitalist society while also resisting it. Yeah. Child, I don't always know that I'm ready. I don't always know that I'm the best one to do that, you know? Mm. But but also like, you know, it would be irresponsible of me to drop the ball because right. this is a resource for community and it can drastically change our lived experiences. And so there's that there's that responsibility, you know? It's you you talk about it very practically of like there is a need I stepped up. I wish it wasn't this way. I can imagine an alternate universe in which, like, I'm just collecting my Oscars, and that's also a dream. How? But like, this is Speak the that. world we're Speak in that, now. You know? Speak that into existence, honey. You know, but yeah, exactly. It's like it. There is a world in which I could be, you know, an actress, and that's it. You know, when I child, when I was four years old, and all I wanted to be was a princess. You know. There, like, there's a world in which I could work for those things, but I also grew up in this world as a young black girl in Birmingham, Alabama, who was denied her girlhood, and denied her girlhood for no other reason than that I didn't look the way they thought a girl looked. Right. You know, and I think that that for me is like what that's the lived reality that brings me to this work and tells me, you know, look. It doesn't matter if this is not, you know, necessarily what you chose. It's what's happening. Mm -hmm. And you have a responsibility to react to it because you have the opportunity to make sure that another little girl like you, another little Black girl growing up in Birmingham, Alabama, who's maybe being denied her girlhood, has a possibility model front and center that says to her, this is who you can be. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, it speaks to something that I've heard and thought about and like other conversations that I've had on this show around, and I don't really know how I feel about it yet, but I think about it a lot of like, those of us that face marginalization, activism is just something that is expected of us. I was having this conversation with a chef who was like, it would be tight to just like be able to cook and focus on my work and not focus on the inequities in the food system. But like, I can't do that as a human. And it's something that's expected of me in a way that like, it's not, it's not a burden that's equally shared. Um, Mm. You know, like white cis chefs are not asked about how do you feel about sexism in kitchens or homophobia in kitchens or whatever it is, Mm. you know, women are Mm -hmm. asked that and queer people are asked that folks that are marginalized don't just get to focus on like their own dreams. Yeah. (laughs) And there's a lot of power in that and it's important work, but it, it, it just is a burden that's not equally shared. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the fact that, you know, I've never been granted the luxury of just getting to show up as an actress or just as a black woman in the space. Right. That's never been something that was extended to me. I've always had to show up as a black, trans, queer, lesbian woman. Like all, all of my all of my identities come in the room with me. And I am fine with that in many ways because I see literally nothing wrong with being any of those things. In fact, I'm grateful that I'm all of those things mm-hmm. at the same time because I think that Black trans people are the closest thing to divinity that we have. Mm. And also, what I don't enjoy about having to show up in all of those ways in that room with, in, with all of those identities forward-facing is the fact that I have to try to distill those identities down to easy and comprehensible ideas for the people around me. Right. Because that's part of the education that they ask me to do, which is a lot of why, you know, you know, as I have done more press and as I have like been asked to speak more about various things that I push back, you know, um, <laughs> what, I don't know where they are now or what, if they actually made the cut, but there have been several interviews where I get asked, you know, what can cis people do? Mm. And I continue to respond the same way and say, well, what do you want to do? Because I'm not going to sit here and explain to you why you should care that black people are dying, like why black trans people are dying. Mm-hmm. That's, not something I'm going to spend my time explaining to you because if you don't care that a, a group of people are dying, then there was really nothing that I would that I can do to convince you of that because that requires a level of human empathy that I can I'm not going to spend the time to instill in you. Right. Like anyone who is not black and trans is not essential to black trans liberation. Mm-hmm. They can be like they can be part of the solution of fixing the larger problem that society faces, but I don't have beef with being black and trans. You do. You fix that problem. Right. In the meantime, I'm going to focus on building up resources for my people with my people. I have no need to wait for you to figure things out. We're going to take a quick break. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. 
HRN made its home inside of Roberto's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Welcome back to Queer the Table. Let's pick up with Ian. I want to talk about like the shift in, we've kind of talked many times about like we are in a global pandemic, nothing is normal. But I think about like the very complicated shift that you had to do from like the core tenant of the Okra Project, which is this beautiful, a black trans chef is going to come into your home and cook you a meal. And in a moment of huge need, that wasn't possible anymore. And you've made that shift. And I wonder if you can talk about first, just like what that experience was like for you of realizing like, oh, we have to shift. We can't do this the same way we've been doing it. Ooh, child. Um, so there were a couple of attempts that we made. Um, the first one was that we, you know, put together these grocery bags and said Black trans people come, you know, pick it up. And it was all living in my living room. And we said mm-hmm. Black trans people, you know, come pick up these grocery bags. Um, and then, and this is kind of in the phase where we were like, oh, we're going to be in quarantine for like two weeks. It's going right. to be a cute little moment, you know? But like, it was during that time when we didn't really know what it was going to be, be given. So we were like, okay, cool. You know, we need to make sure that people get fed during these you know, two weeks because we know that like there's going to be shortages. So how can we address that? So we made these, you know, these bags. And we said, all right, so Black trans people come get your food. And we did that for a little bit. And then we had a huge donation be dropped off to us from the truck and, we, and it was like literally filling my living room. And I was like, okay, we got to figure out something else to do. So we found a volunteer with a car who we basically loaded up the back of the car and we just went door to door. And we had like sort of this traveling grocery store situation. And then as we went on, it just became clear, wait a minute, mm. this, is, this is more serious than we thought. And this is not something that we can, you know, and so we had to pull back. We just had to pull everything back. And it's been so hard because, you know, the thing that we're known for is the very thing that we can't really do right now. And so we are actively rounding the corner. You know, if you go on our, web, in our, on our Instagram, you'll see that we've like put out a call for Black trans chefs so we, we can get connected, um, reconnected to other, to people that we may have lost contact with, as well as to, um, you know, as well to meet new folks who we can start working with now that we have a larger platform and an ability to reach those individuals. And so as we're moving through that process, we're going to be figuring out ways to do this safely. And now we've been through quarantine. Unfortunately, there is, you know, it is highly probable that there is going to be a second wave and we will have to go back into like right. real quarantine, not like cute pretend quarantine. Um, 
And, you know, and we are actively working at the OCA project to figure out how to address those measures. Um, I'm not sure if I answered your question now that I'm thinking about it. No, you did. You you absolutely did. And I and I would say too, like I can kind of hear the you know, there's grief in in it a little bit of like, oh, this is long and we've had to pull back from this core thing, but it also like you've also filled in in other ways, like there's the COVID nineteen relief fund that you all have set up and two mental health recovery funds, if I'm getting that right. And so you know, like it's the pulling back. I just want to be clear, like you might be pulling back, but you're still, you know, <laughs> I appreciate that. Yeah. No, we, we, yeah, we, you're very right. <laughs> um, that was, you know, at the, it, but it was, it was tough. And, and I think also part of the reason that like things really di- like also dipped off, like once we realized that this was, you know, not going to be a temporary thing was just me as an individual. I had, there was a lot that I was going through and I just couldn't be a leader at that time. You know, I, I was not able to support the Oka Project in the way that I needed to. And, and I think that you're right, that there is some grief and there's some guilt around that. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like a continuation of what you've been speaking to, which is like, you are real about like the present moment and you're facing it. And I think we'll continue to do that you're not like it doesn't sound like you're trying to rush back into quote unquote the way things were Mm -hmm. before I am impressed and grateful with the way that you are willing to meet the moment as it is like the way that you talked about meeting yourself where you're at you're also like meeting the moment where it is and certainly there's pain in that but it's also refreshing of like you're here um, and I'm just really, really grateful for well, I appreciate that. that and for your time. Um, this has been so wonderful. Oh, I appreciate that, Mona. I do. Things are bleak. I know. But I genuinely feel better knowing that the Okra Project exists. They're providing a model for community care and mutual aid that's going to keep adapting and growing and thriving and resting no matter what. Clear the Table is produced by me, Nico Whistler. Our logo was designed by Natalie Uduella, and the theme song was written and performed by Denali Gillespie. You can find us and reach out on Instagram at Queer the Table. Queer the Table is powered by Simplecast and is hosted by Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us on facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.